Hi, I'm Louisa Boa-Taylor, and this is Future Food, where food trends and new technologies converge. There is a systemic change occurring in our food system. In this podcast, we speak to entrepreneurs, investors, chefs, farmers, and others defining that future. Hey, Danielle, how are you? How did you enjoy our latest Future Food news review? Hi, Louisa. I am doing great. Uh, It was such a great conversation. We touched on such a wide diversity of topics. And as always, I learned a ton. What about you? Yeah, absolutely. It was really a great range of stories. One of the favorites that we jumped into was Jimena Bustillo from Politico was talking about the range of different climate acts that are being introduced into Congress and the U.S. government and looking at how the agriculture industry can introduce more beneficial practices and so on. Uh, It seems like there's a long way to go, but it was exciting to talk about that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's every other day I'm either seeing headlines or receiving press releases from companies who are making these carbon neutrality commitments and So I think the idea of the carbon bank and what the federal government can do from a legislative perspective in order to help to build a market for carbon for farmers to have carbon farming be something where, you know, they can get paid to take care of their soils and to sequester carbon is huge. And I know that it's early days, but very exciting space that we'll be tracking and covering in depth here over the next couple months. Absolutely. And then we also dug into SPACs a little bit, which are special purpose acquisition companies, which some companies in agri-food tech have been using to list on public markets. And the latest is Grab, Southeast Asian Deliver Anything app, which is planning to list with a $40 billion valuation, which is obviously huge. Yeah. And then there were some kind of unexpected things that came out. You know, we we talked a lot about food workers and, you know, we had Leah Douglas from Fern, who's been reporting tirelessly on what happened to food and packing workers in particular. And we got into an interesting conversation around automation. And so we kind of talked about how these food workers, these meat plant workers are still getting sick and that not much has changed at the meat plants. And Chloe told us that JBS and and Tyson are really moving to more towards automation now because they, rather than improving worker rights and the conditions in their factories, they are moving towards automation. So that's definitely something that we're going to be looking out for. Another big topic that we talked about was Amazon. And they launched uh, a Plenty this week, which is a new private label food brand that is going to, supposed to have hundreds of SKUs. And that is going to be huge. It's a huge rippling effect across the whole CPG industry. And so we had some great insight from Sam Silverstein at Grocery Dive talking to us about that story. And we had Errol Schweitzer, who used to run the private label at at Whole Foods for eight years on to add some nuance to that as well. It wouldn't be a Future Food News review without us talking about alternative proteins. So we had a couple of stories there, one around a company using mycelium, which is from mushrooms to make bacon. 
and also research that shows that no matter how much funding is going into plant-based alternatives, meat consumption is still not declining. So that was a very good uh, dug-in topic and all the journalists contributed there. Yeah, on the policy front, we also... There is another interesting policy that is being pushed through in the restaurant industry to reduce single-use plastics and Just Salad is helping to spearhead this. So we spoke with Jen Marston about that story, which is really interesting. And I didn't realize it, but uh, McDonald's and Burger King are working on some circular packaging efforts. So I'm going to have to dig in more to that because that... That piqued my interest. And then lastly, Errol Schweitzer talked about the union. So UFCW Local 770, they are in the Southern California Union who's fighting for hazard pay and is now facing down Kroger store closings. He talked about an interview that he did with them and a retail clerk um, whose store is closing and needs to find a new job. And it was great to have some interesting dialogue with Chloe Sorvino from Forbes, who had also reported on this. Yes, so we really hope you enjoy this episode of Future Food News Review. As always, we're open to feedback and we would love to hear from other journalists that want to get involved that are covering food tech, ag tech and food systems news globally. And one thing to note, we are always trying to highlight as many diverse people, voices, perspectives. So if you are a journalist or a writer in this space who wants to get involved and join us for future sessions, please reach out to Louisa or I to join us. I'd love to introduce our amazing crew of journalists that we have presenting today. We have Jimena Busio returning to us from Politico. Jen Marston, a contributor for The Spoon. We have Leela Nagari, who is a contributor to a lot of different uh, publications, including The Counter and Civil Eats. We will have Sarah Mock joining us. We have Elaine Watson from Food Navigator USA. Sam Silverstein joining us from Grocery Dive. And today, this welcome, Sam, for your first one. Megan Poinsky from Food Dive. Leah Douglas from Fern and Chloe Sorvino from Forbes and Errol Schweitzer from the Checkout podcast and Forbes. So today we're going to have a really a deep dive into a couple of the big stories this week from Amazon's Aplenty launch to Grab's $40 billion SPAC deal, the Climate Stewardship Act. We're going to be talking about uh, farm work, food and farm workers and their rights. Let's dig in. Louisa, do you want to kick it off with this, the stories that you were going to share about the agri-food tech investment in China and Grab's $40 billion spec deal? Right, exactly. Yes. So excited to kick things off with a little peek into what's going on in Asia. The first story I wanted to share was about Grab, Southeast Asia's largest deliver anything app. Um, they, you know, food is a big portion of that. And they've announced plans to do what will be the largest ever SPAC transaction onto the NASDAQ stock exchange, a $40 billion valuation. This is definitely you know, the largest SPAC in a, across any sector. And it's the latest one that we've seen in agri-food tech. After Aero Farms, the vertical farming group recently announced they intend to do one, and App Harvest, 
also indoor ag, but on the greenhouse side, did one earlier this year. So for those of you that don't know, SPAC stands for Special Purpose Acquisition Company, and it's basically a vehicle for companies to list on a stock exchange and go public without having to do uh, an initial public offering, an IPO, which can be a lengthy and expensive process with quite a bit of regulation around it and lots of scrutiny from investors. Whereas with a SPAC, are essentially bought by an existing listed company that's already done an IPO, but that the sole purpose of that listed company is to find a promising company to essentially acquire and merge with. So you can, according to the FT, you know, you can get a really good price for your company, a good valuation with a SPAC. And SPACs with tech companies have managed to get a valuation on average three times, 13 times their previous year's revenue, which is about four times what you would get from like a typical M&A acquisition of a tech company. So you can get quite a good valuation for your company doing a SPAC. It also gives smaller investors that have typically been shut out of IPOs in favour of larger investors uh, the chance to put money into an early stage venture. You know, and that could be quite a good thing for a popular tech startup. Companies can also raise cash quicker and have a bit more certainty on what the share price and valuation will be earlier on in the process. Yes, so Grab will, be list, Grab will be listing on the NASDAQ at a $40 billion valuation. The SPAC that it's merging with is actually only worth about $500 million. So they're actually going to be raising an extra $4.5 billion from some of the really large institutions like BlackRock, Morgan Stanley. Slightly begs the question of why they need to do a SPAC when they're really going to be going after those institutional investors like they would in an IPO. And it's a very different situation to a smaller company like Aero Farms or App Harvest, who you know, are still some years from making a profit and they're in less well-known, understood sectors for the public market. So SPAC seems to make a bit more sense. But it's really exciting. You know, it's a really, really massive, big deal. One thing, a word of caution, is it looks like we might be heading for a bit of a SPAC bubble. Uh, the number of listed SPAC entities is at record highs. And there have already been about 300 SPAC IPOs this year already versus 250 across all of 2020 and about 70 in 2019. And there's a decent portion of those that did IPO, they never actually found a company to acquire. So there could be a bit of a bubble emerging and it looks also like regulators might be starting to clamp down there. But it is a really interesting way for agri-food tech companies to give an exit to some of their investors. It's a big question mark, a bit of a, a looming question around where investors are, how investors are going to get their money back in some of these ag tech startups that are starting to get quite old now and have been around for quite a while. Definitely one to watch. I probably have gone over my two minutes, Danielle. Do you think I can still talk about China or should we move yeah. on? Just give us an update on China. Yeah. Okay. Great. So we did, we released a new report this week with Bits and Bytes, which is an agri-food tech VC based in Shanghai. Um, and we track all investment into agri-food startups in China. And it's been really interesting to sort of watch what the trends are over the years. But in 2020, Chinese agri-food startups raised $6 billion, which was a 66% year-on-year increase. But what's really interesting here is that most of the investment in China's agri-food startup space has been downstream into a lot of premium branded foods. It's been into food delivery, e-grocery. And while those still accounted for some of the biggest categories, what we saw for the first time was real growth in investment upstream into farm tech, 
farm tech and innovative food startups. And I think what the reason for that is against a backdrop of the Chinese government and large corporations have really been investing more in farmland and consolidating agriculture in China. China is typically um, made up of lots of small farms, as in many Asian countries, so that this consolidation is going to be creating bigger agricultural enterprises that now will be able to do more easily. When you have bigger farmland, you can imagine you'd be able to deploy big technologies on there. And so some of the technology getting a lot of investment with things like drones. So using drones for applying chemicals has been, you know, growing in pace in China. So yeah, that's the China Investment Report. You can download it on agfunder.com if you'd like to. That's me. If anyone has any questions or comments. Yeah, I'm kind of curious with all this investment happening in um, China into the ag tech space, I mean, what broader implications do you think that that's going to have for agriculture, agriculture globally? And just for the growth of the ad tech space. It's exciting because the, you know, DGI is a Chinese company and that's a drone company and that's used all over the world. You know, China's obviously a leader in many different technologies. So if they're starting to get really more into the, you know, the farm tech game, I think we could see some of these innovations advancing more rapidly for you know, other parts of the world. And there's no reason to think they couldn't be exported from China to other parts. You know, there's 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 slightly different challenges they face. And as I mentioned, the farm size, the topography, you know, is very different there. But in terms of exporting to other Asian markets, you know, this could become a real powerhouse for ag tech innovation. Chloe, did you have a question for Louisa? I had a comment more about SPACs. I just wanted to say that it definitely has been a bit of a bubble, but the SEC did put out regulations earlier this week that should probably stave off this kind of huge pipeline right now. But, uh, you know, I can't tell you how many founders and investors have told me, you know, I could get a SPAC and, and go public, you know, within, you know, 30, 60 days. It just really cuts down on the time that it takes and, and, the expense of all of that. So it has been really interesting in terms of how it could democratize food exits and ag tech exits and, you know, more than just a conglomerate or, or a big, big company going public. But, um, you know, we'll see how the kind of tapering off ends up happening. It's been around like nine months of this kind of craziness. So, yeah, absolutely. I think just what's kind of interesting or kind of weird with Grab is that it ends up looking like an IPO, but they're just using this quick and easy mechanism, as you said, to do it. And I think, you know, that maybe that will be a sort of rare type of structure, but that might be where the regulators, you know, start to think that they should be using the IPO process. But yeah, it's definitely could be a great thing for investors and startups in the space. All right. Well, moving right along. Next, we have Sam Silverstein, who's going to share, talk about two stories. And we're going to quickly talk about, there's an interesting story around Farmstead partnering with DoorDash and uh, new delivery models are, are pretty interesting. And then the big news of the week, Amazon launching a private label brand and digging into what that means for the CPG world and for other retailers. So Sam, tell us a little bit about both those stories. Hi, everybody. I'll start with Farmstead and DoorDash, and then I can move on to Amazon. As you said, it's a really big story. But the interesting news that came out this week about uh, Farmstead is that they're really, they're really looking to step up their presence, which is already uh, formidable, but they're stepping up their presence in, in the online grocery space. Uh, Farmstead is an e-grocer based in California that has been expanding pretty rapidly. They raised $7.9 million last year, and they went from their original 
market of the San Francisco Bay Area. So I had a couple of more cities on the East Coast, and they have their sights on many more cities this year. And so what they've done now is tied up with DoorDash, which allows them to offer one-hour delivery on top of Farmstead's own delivery service. And of course, there's a big push for delivery to be as quick as possible with some companies like GoPuff getting it down to 15 minutes even or so. And and so uh, Farmstead is obviously looking as well to give people easy access to online groceries. But they not only have decided to work with DoorDash for themselves, Farmstead, they're also working with DoorDash to allow companies, grocers that use Farmstead's grocery OS online ordering technology to sell their wares over DoorDash under their own brand names. So this allows DoorDash to have more people coming through potentially to buy groceries, and it allows more grocers to give themselves a presence online in the online delivery space. That story came out this week, but I think uh, probably the bigger story is Amazon's decision to really ramp up its presence in private label. They already have several private labels. I'll talk about that in a moment. But the big news is that this week they announced a plenty. Now, a plenty is a new private label specifically built around food brands that Amazon describes as being pretty healthy. These are going to be foods they say that will not have artificial flavors, synthetic colors, high fructose corn syrup, those kinds of things. And they're really looking to, it looks, uh, looks like they're looking to attract consumers who want to buy food conveniently, but also are looking for it to be better for them, better, more nutritious. Uh, the brand is going to include sweets, cookies, salty snacks, frozen foods, baking mixes, pantry staples, lots of things that Amazon wants people to come to their website to purchase. Uh, but of course, there's the advantage for Amazon, as with any retailer, that private label can offer greater margins than selling national brands or other brand names. For Amazon, it's a chance to step up their presence in grocery, which has already been growing quite quite rapidly over the past few years, particularly in the past year. And we'll see where this goes, but definitely important development from Amazon. Go for it, Errol. I was going to call on you. <laughs> that was great reporting. I was, it was probably the best article I've seen on this topic. The uh, Plenty brand is interesting because to me, it seems like it's really going after Good & Gather, Target, you know, the latest Target rebranding for private label, and Simple Truth, but a bit more watered down and almost like hipster with the, uh, you know, the funky fonts and the warm colors. And, and it just, to me, it also feels super watered down from what they're doing with the 365 brand and that the health claims are dicey. The ingredients are, you know, besides the uh, no artificial colors or flavors, you know, stuff still contains GMOs. I mean, it's, it's still essentially slightly better for you, slightly lesser evil junk, fuel, f- junk food. Then, then again, it's Amazon. It's going to be completely dominant. It'll probably be a multi-billion dollar brand, you know, with, you know within a few, <laughs> a few months considering their market share. And I also just want to challenge the mythology of, the private label brands having a better margin, as I, I don't know if that's possible with Amazon, considering their take from third-party brands is close to 30%. I do, however, think this is a market share grab, and I think this will help them leverage and put more pressure on, the, uh, 30, uh, on these other uh, third-party brands in the consumables categories. But otherwise, great, great article. 
Oh, sorry. I just wanted to give everyone context. So Errol was oversaw private label grocery at Whole Foods for eight years. So he brings that kind of perspective to the conversation. Sam, um, please feel free to respond. I just wanted to note that not only will Amazon be selling plenty online, but it's going to be on shelves in the growing fleet of Amazon fresh grocery stores. And of course, they're looking to grow that quickly. There are reports now we keep seeing of more stores in the pipeline already. The 12th store opened last month, and they only started opening the chain of stores last fall, last year. So the my sense is that Amazon is going to be able to use a plenty as a way to define the Amazon fresh stores a little bit more uh, from other grocery stores. And of course, the fresh stores are interesting in that they are basically conventional grocery stores, but they're also a way for Amazon to showcase its product. So I think we'll see where this goes, but I believe that the Aplenty brand, along with the other private labels that Amazon has built up over the years, uh, certainly are a way for, the, for them to define themselves as they look to, to make a splash in grocery. Curious, I have a ton of questions on this. I'm curious if anyone else here has questions. I don't have a question. And, uh, or can comments. you hear me? I'm not... We can do okay. that again. Great. I'm on a new microphone, which is why I'm asking. You know, it, it's really interesting because private label has been kind of an interesting story throughout the pandemic. A lot of their growth has come more recently because at the beginning of the pandemic and at sometimes throughout, there haven't been the big brands on shelves, yet consumers are looking for the big brands. They grab whatever else is there. Because private label tends to cost less, it could be setting itself up for large growth in the post-pandemic period when uh, it kind of, if there is more of an economic slowdown. But it's kind of a big question mark as if as to whether that will happen and what's going to happen next with private label in general. However, Stores have definitely been bulking up their private label offerings uh, during the last year, um, as well as. Treehouse Foods, which makes all private label offerings, um, they have been working on expanding their portfolio to get ready for what is to come. Yeah, this is um, Elaine at Food Navigator. I, I think that this is kind of interesting because it was my kind of perception that during the pandemic, private label was you know possibly going to gain share, that there seemed to be a lot of activity. And, and yeah, I saw some data from the PLMA I think it was this week, that said that, that the market share of private label had actually remained pretty constant um, between you know 2019 and 2020, which surprised me. I assumed it would have gained share, but it didn't. So apparently it's kind of stuck at around kind of 19, 19.5%, you know, kind of value share across, you know, all, and this is excluding um, e-commerce, but this is kind of um, measured kind of bricks and mortar channels. And then volume, it stayed the same at about, you know, 23%, um, which kind of surprised me because... Like coming from the UK market where you've got 45, maybe 50% of, you know, sales in many food retailers that are private label and, and here in the US, you know, it seems to have stuck fairly stubbornly around that kind of 19% mark. So it'll be really interesting to see what happens in the next couple of years. Errol, I'm, I'm curious on your thought, and not just Errol, but everyone, you know, what are the implications of this going to be for emerging brands, right? Like, what is it going to look like for, you know, we see what 
Amazon has done with fashion brands, right? They're one of the largest fashion retailers. They are able to use data to see what the trends are, and then they create Amazon Basics or under one of their other fashion brands. So what are those implications for food brands? Will it change how they think about their Amazon strategy? I think with Amazon, and also oh, greater um, food system implications as well. Well, honestly, uh, Lane's point was was spot on. You know, Amazon motto of your margin is our opportunity, I think, like, extends this in food. There's just a bit less margin to play with. So in my experience, when you, when you launch a private label, and this happened with Kroger and Simple Truth, you, you get like this, you know, hockey stick growth for the first 18, 24 months. But then it's, it, it plateaus. It's hard to cycle over that because it's all about gaining market share. You don't have any incremental trade spend to to spend against it to you know promote it and that's what i think you're going to see in retail grocery is a lot of promotional activity from third-party brands from the incumbents you know big food etc you know i've written about trade spend before too and you're going to see a lot more of that in terms of emerging brands you know the point is always differentiation and innovation if you have a good idea and setting yourselves apart and finding the financing you know the challenges remain and, you know, there's obviously a big investor appetite in certain categories and other categories. It's been very hard to raise uh, financing over the pandemic. So I think it's a big question mark. And I do think it's going to be challenging for emerging brands, especially over the next year, year to two, to really grow and establish themselves. I think the economy is going to have to stabilize. And I think that customers, you know, consumers are going to have to prove that they're willing to, to experiment, try new things, because they're still, I think, in pandemic buying habits. Great. Thank you for that. Louisa, you want to introduce our next story? Yes, great. Next up, we have Jimena Bustillo from Politico, and you're going to tell us about the Climate Stewardship Act, which was introduced this week. And, you know, across agriculture and ag tech, everyone is keenly watching what regulators are going to do regarding carbon markets. Lots of innovation happening in that space. So, yeah, can you tell us what's been going on this week? Yeah, there's definitely a whole lot to talk about. This whole week has been a kind of huge hodgepodge of lawmakers introducing bills on the House side and on the Senate side to kind of address climate change through agriculture initiatives. And so this sort of began at the start of the week with Cory Booker and Representative Abigail Spanberger introducing or reintroducing rather the climate Stewardship Act, which expands existing voluntary programs that provide initiatives for farmers and ranchers to revive deforested land or take part in a wide variety of programs, as well as like the goal of planting billions of trees over the next decade. But they kind of weren't the only one. So I, I kind of want to expand this out a little bit more because we had a bipartisan pair of representatives in introduce the Farmers Fighting Climate Change Act, which does kind of the same thing, except focuses more on the climate stewardship program, which is a program that provides uh, incentives, grants, loans for farmers and ranchers taking part in certain, quote, like climate stewardship actions. Uh, And then in the Senate, we had Debbie Stabenow and Mike Braun uh, reintroduce the Rural Forest Markets Act, which focuses on family-owned forests and allows them to enter carbon markets a little bit easier. And the news just kind of keeps on coming. Like this morning at 8.30, I sat in on a press call with House Ag GOP members who unveiled their own package to address 
carbon markets, upkeep forests, um, provide funding and incentives for equipment that can help provide a more greener agriculture. So kind of where this is all coming from is a lot of these bills have already been introduced before. They're being reintroduced this session. They were dead on arrival uh, in the last session, meaning that they were introduced. They maybe got assigned a committee and were never heard from again. <laughs> but this time around, a lot of lawmakers are really like hitching on to Biden's $2 trillion infrastructure package, which talks a lot about climate change and it talks about getting the American economy to net zero emissions with farmers largely leading the charge. But there's not a whole lot of clarity as to how that is going to happen or where that inclusion um, for agriculture is in terms of getting to that net zero goal. So there's open for negotiations kind of across the board. And even Biden has said that this is very open to compromises on every provision, like everything's kind of up for grabs. So you have these different lawmakers introducing these different packages and these different bills. And they all say that they do have the hopes of attaching it to this larger vehicle, which is the $2 trillion infrastructure package, which is also might be less than that, (laughs) that there's so many negotiations kind of happening on that front as well. But it will be really interesting to see what will be included because there are are still a lot of barriers to entry for these programs, including costs, difficulty with applications, or just straight up exclusion of certain farmers or certain growers or certain foresters that aren't able to take part in programs that maybe they would like to or would be able to otherwise. And then kind of on a separate other front, you have lawmakers like Representative Cindy Axney, who is kind of taking a different approach. And rather than introducing her own measure, she's encouraging lawmakers to include things. For her, it's focusing on the biofuel sector, because Iowa is a very large state for producing corn that goes into ethanol. And so she has this vision of biofuels being this transitionary phase to getting to that cleaner economy. But she doesn't necessarily have a bill or a piece of legislation pushing that through. It's more just kind of her own advocacy. So I kind of like spewed a lot of bill names and a lot of representative names out there. But it will be interesting to see kind of how we transition from just all of these standalone items and even standalone packages to what will actually make it in and whether those initiatives after all negotiations will reduce those barriers to entry that I kind of mentioned earlier. Yeah, so... How how does it typically work? I mean, could there be, you've got all these separate bills, as you mentioned, could they mm-hmm. essentially get combined into something yes. towards the end? Is mm-hmm. that how it sort of works? Yes. As they negotiate this larger infrastructure package, what will basically happen is individual bills will get basically like grandfathered in to this larger package. Um, and that's what we've seen in the previous coronavirus packages, uh, other spending omnibus bills, is there actually like a huge, huge bill made up of smaller bills. And so it's a large negotiation for what gets included and what doesn't get included. But then within that, bills can kind of change in those negotiations themselves. So it's kind of like a little like a Russian doll of legislation. (laughs) 
<laughs> right. Yeah. And and what and what you've read so far of these bills, you know, I had a, a quick glance at the Climate Stewardship Act. But, you know, this mm-hmm. carbon market thing is, is such a hot topic at the moment in ag tech and agriculture, you know, understanding wh- which player you should go with. It looks like at the moment you're going to have various different providers that are aiming to measure uh, soil carbon on the farm, but then also be on that sort of incentivization and monetization piece and creating a market for selling them. You know, I personally think there's like potentially some issue there having a private company doing all of that, you know, and it's pretty open to, to fraud. So where the government is going to come in and play a role is really what the big question mark is. But I'm not sure how much of a framework there is in any of these bills towards that. Mm-hmm. Um, well, th- again, that's a really good point is right now it is fairly privatized. And one of the things that the GOP House members were saying this morning is that they don't really want government intervention in the carbon markets. They want to keep it in the private sector. I would assume that the Democrats are probably going to argue a little bit separate approach since they are introducing more legislation that might intervene a little bit more in the carbon markets, might expand who is able to partake in in this specific initiative as it is. There's a lot of unknowns when it comes to (laughs) carbon markets and how that is going to play out, especially moving forward with an infrastructure package as we're seeing right now. Yeah. Lots of question marks. What does anyone else have a comment or question? I, I was just curious, Jimena, on what what you think the implications might be for farmers, right, and for food companies that are starting to, you know, invest in regenerative agriculture. But you know, aside from just the um, carbon marketplaces, there's a lot of infrastructure investment, a lot of investment in supply chain in order to kind of shift agricultural practices. So, are are any of the bills looking to provide funding for that kind of work? Yeah, for sure. The So the different bills kind of help to provide funding for different programs that can in turn increase the reach to farmers that are lower income, smaller farmers, farmers in more rural areas that maybe don't have as many access to resources. But that's kind of a part of the debate. And the problem right now is making sure that you are increasing that access. Because again, there are a lot of barriers to entry right now. And making sure that those barriers to entry are addressed will be a part of larger conversations across the board, across you know what the GOP is introducing, across what the Democrats are introducing. And they all, you know, I think have that in mind. You know, it's been a part of conversations in all press conferences with reporters. But again, it comes down to what will finally make it into that larger vehicle. I have a question. There's been a lot of pushback, but, and Sarah Mock was supposed to be on here today. I'm sorry not to see her here. On the idea that voluntary, having farmers sign up for these kinds of things voluntarily and keeping it uh, along those lines is going to have any mm-hmm. sort of major impact. Is the conversation still strictly around keeping things voluntary at this point? I don't think so. I think that, you know, that's a very good point. And these bills right now, they do focus largely on existing programs, which are largely voluntary. There aren't a lot of additional mandates for what operations need to meet certain goals. Um, But that is obviously something that could change. I don't know what the likelihood of that is right now, because all of these conversations are 
early and up and coming, even though these bills have been introduced before and have been dead on arrival before. They're being renegotiated under this new framework of the Biden's infrastructure plan, uh, infrastructure plan, which doesn't give a whole lot of guidance, right? Like the White House fact sheet is not overly specific to what specifically farmers need to do or what lawmakers need to require of farmers and ranchers. A lot of ag organizations and like institutions haven't even fully come out in large support of the Biden plan because there are a lot of unknowns and like what what are the costs of these going to be? What are you know, how is this going to be funded? So there is a lot of hesitancy even from the ag sector, not just you know, from the ground, like farmers and ranchers, but larger companies and institutions to automatically just like jump on board, largely because of that reason. Thanks so much, Jimena. Next, we have Jen Marson from The Spoon, who's going to be talking to us about a how restaurants are breaking up with single-use plastics. Jen, tell us about that and the, the Break Free from Plastic Pollution Act. Yes, well, we hope that the breakup will be severe and huge in the future, but really it's just just as started. And yeah, so the Break Free from Plastic Pollution Act is legislation that was, well, the Plastic Pollution 2021 Act, it's legislation that was recently introduced. Uh, it's building on previous legislation, but it, it would basically implement fairly big changes in the U.S. to curb our reliance on single-use plastics. It would sort of set some requirements, minimum contents around recycling, set up some national programs, that sort of thing. Where restaurants specifically are concerned is a restaurant chain called Just Salad, which is based in New York, but has a bunch of, I think it's over 50 locations around the U.S. at this point. And they have typically always just been kind of a pioneer of sustainability in the restaurant. Uh, they have a number of different, I mean, their reusable bowl program is as old as 2006, I believe. They, to raise more awareness about the Break Free from Plastic Pollution Act, they recently penned this sign-on letter and are sending it around to restaurants, trying to get restaurants to kind of come out and publicly support this idea of getting rid of plastics and especially single-use plastics in the restaurant business. And they've gotten quite a bit of support. I don't know if they're, they're not, last time I checked, divulging the names of actual restaurants or anything, but I understand from Just Salad's chief sustainability officer, Sandra Noonan, that there's some fairly large chains on board at this point. I think there are a couple reasons why that matters. One is just that there are efforts out there to pilot reusable programs, to pilot circular delivery and that sort of thing. I know McDonald's is doing some stuff, so is Burger King, uh, Just Salad, I already mentioned. But all of these efforts in the restaurant business are pretty siloed at this point, and so it's hard to have a, a major impact across an industry that is responsible for quite a bit of trash, especially now with so many people doing delivery and takeout. It's possible that this bill, if passed through, would help to standardize some of these things. And it, I think it would also help to make them accessible to the restaurants that maybe can't afford to to do as much around sustainability. You know, somebody somebody actually left a comment this morning on a Spoon story about this saying, oh, 
people are just sort of going to sit around and, and wait for a law. And it's like, well, in an ideal world, every restaurant, you know, on the block would be putting a lot of effort into sustainability. But the reality is we're coming off a year where a lot of restaurants are lucky to be keeping their lights on. So I don't know that it's fair to ask the smaller guys to, you know, funnel a bunch of money they probably don't have into these efforts. That's why we need sort of bigger legislation and hopefully the influence of some of the bigger chains that do have the money and that can, you know, maybe use it to help uh, spearhead some of these efforts. So I feel like I just gave a lot of information, but uh, yeah, I think it's it's exciting. I think it's just the beginning here and there's going to be a lot around packaging and waste in the restaurant to talk about in the future. Yeah. So what, how would the act, would is the idea to provide funding to develop some of these systems or, you know, I totally get, I mean, it's an issue that happens across the industry where this thinking about the circular packaging or, you know, getting rid of single use packaging. I mean, it's, I think everyone's trying it out, whether you're in the restaurant industry, the BG industry. So what do the incentives look like to help reduce the cost of that, you think, through these kind of initiatives, through the SAC? Well, yeah, I think definitely one is to invest more in reusable programs and these programs like, you know, I think more of circular delivery. It's also, I think, a big push for this version of the legislation is also to curb plastic use more at its source. So instead of, and this is, it's interesting, this is something Jess Salad's been talking about for years, which is sort of stopping the waste before it ever gets into the restaurant. So it also incentivize like good design, innovation in packaging, sort of bring that more to the forefront of, okay, if you're not going to use single-use plastic, what what are you going to use? What does material science have to say about that? And also just environmental justice is another big thing with this act, which is there's a very disproportionate amount of pollution from plastic that impacts a lot of communities of color, a lot of underserved communities. And so making, you know, addressing that is another part of the bill as well. Jen, I was wondering if you could talk a bit about how this might affect plastic bags. In the grocery industry, that's a major topic of discussion, how to reduce or eliminate the use of plastic so that people walk out of stores with sustainable bags for their products. But whenever people order or take away food from a restaurant, it's, I think, quite likely that the food will be put into a plastic bag for them. How will that be included in all of this discussion? Yeah, I think that's a fantastic question. I think the, the bag problem is huge. And the, they, the bill didn't specifically mention plastic bags, but I think it does seem like plastic bags are one of those things that is going to have to be addressed on kind of a more government regulatory level. I mean, I know there are individual cities that have introduced a plastic bag ban, but if memory serves me correctly, it's, it's, almost, it's a little bit difficult to enforce in some places. I think one of the things, and I was having a conversation with Sandra Noonan from Just Salad a couple weeks ago about this, as far as getting rid of plastic bags, is she mentioned, is there a way to show more businesses, especially restaurants, 
that they can save money by not offering a plastic bag. And it's sort of part of it is changing this consumer perception around, well, do I need a bag to carry this box out of the store? That changes with delivery, obviously, because the customer is not in the restaurant. Grocery, I'm, I'm a little bit less familiar with. That's not really my area of specialty, but it does seem, from what I've seen of plastic bag bans in like New York, it just sort of, it seems like it, the change to, to make that a widespread change, you would need some sort of legislation in place. Otherwise, it's kind of hard to incentivize people. Okay, well... Thank you so much for that. If no one else has any comments or, or questions. Nope. We will move on to Leah Douglas. So you've been doing some amazing reporting over the past few months around outbreaks of, of COVID in food and meatpacking plants. And you had an article this week talking you know, about how it's still really impossible to understand the numbers. So yeah, Leah, please take it away. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Yes, so I've been covering spread of COVID at uh, food production facilities for the last year. And this past week, I, I published uh, sort of a retrospective on a year of collecting this data from states and companies as to how many workers had contracted COVID and, and what facilities were being most impacted uh, by the spread of the virus. And the story is really looking at uh, the top line is essentially after, you know, 12 months of trying to collect this data and all the, the, the writing that's been done on this issue and crisis for workers, we still don't really know the extent to which, you know, workers were sickened by the virus last year and also the ongoing impact of the pandemic on the food system workforce. Um, and there's a few reasons for that. The primary reason that I talk about um, in the story is the lack of sort of standard reporting practices from states and public health agencies around workplace illness. And, you know, in different states, there's been a lot of pressure from, from business interests not to release um, identifying information about businesses that have had um, COVID outbreaks among their employees for a variety of reasons. And in the meat industry, you know, the industry has said there's confidentiality concerns around releasing that data themselves. And some, and some states have complied with pressure from industry not to release that data at the state level as well. And in this story, I took a look at um, a, a subset of the data I'd been collecting for several months at about um, facilities that had had multiple outbreaks of COVID, which I found to be kind of an interesting recurring phenomenon I was seeing in a bunch of different states and tried to understand uh, from at least one facility where that had happened, why we were seeing multiple outbreaks over the course of the year. Because in an ideal world, you know, an outbreak that uh, facility, excuse me, that had an outbreak would adopt precautions so that the outbreaks wouldn't happen again in the future. So I spoke to a worker at a Tyson Foods chicken processing plant in Arkansas who spoke to some of the ongoing um, issues accessing PPE and accessing time to quarantine uh, that, you know, workers continued to spread the virus amongst themselves because of some of those structural issues. Also reported that accessing testing was, was hard in the facility and the company's testing protocol wasn't catching all the positive cases. Um, and as a result, the positive cases weren't being reported up the chain to the state. And so the information that was being made public, which the state of Arkansas does publish uh, pretty good information on this, according to this worker and, and their advocate, uh, you know, was not comprehensive to how many people were actually sick at the facility. 
So I found this to be kind of an interesting place to look to try to understand, you know, there was a a ton of attention on on the spread of COVID in these facilities last spring and summer when it was definitely the most acute. But there have been, you know, ongoing lingering issues and outbreaks recurring. And the fact that we still don't know the extent to which that's, that's ongoing makes it difficult to address difficult to come up with the solutions that will really, you know, end the pandemic for these workers. And in the story, you know, I talked to some some folks about how to reach that phase. And, you know, definitely vaccination is is a really important chapter we're in right now. And these workers are getting vaccinated um, in a lot of different states. And, you know, many folks have pointed out to me, vaccination can't be the, the only strategy because this is a workforce with high turnover. Vaccination, as we know, is, you know, we're not at herd immunity or anywhere close in most places. So there have to be other um, engineering controls, is what the public health folks call it, you know, masks and distancing and such in place at these facilities to, to curtail the spread of the virus and other ways as well. So I think it's an interesting point to be kind of talking about this issue. It's um, it's faded in a lot of ways from, uh, you know, the top line crises of the pandemic. And we are definitely in a better place this spring than we were last spring, absolutely, in terms of workers getting sick. Uh, but it is a continued issue that we still don't know the extent to which there this is an ongoing problem and the severity of the problem in different places. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. It is. It does seem to be crazy that you know, they haven't been able to, to ha- get a handle on this. I'm wondering if, if in any of your reporting and speaking to various workers or, or some of the companies, if um, you've seen any kind of indications that there might be more deployment and adoption of robotics in some of these factories, obviously that would reduce um, the dangers around COVID. You know, that's a great question. And I, I can't say that I have heard that. You know, I think what it was interesting in the reporting for this story, what I heard a lot was the, the fundamental conditions in the facilities are essentially the same as they were pre-COVID or even in the beginning of the crisis when it was really acute. And, you know, as it relates to that question, I think, you know, to extrapolate it, you know, the, the essential way that the work is done hasn't changed. You know, there's still the same number of workers in the facility, the same, you know, very little distance between workers in the facility. You know, I'm sure that there are plants that are adopting varying levels of technology and that, and that was true before COVID as well. But in terms of a direct response to this crisis, you know, more or less what I've heard is that the there hasn't been widespread adoption of, of those types of changes that would materially change how workers are experiencing the plants. Leah, why, you know, there was such a light that was shown on how just criminal the working conditions are. Why, why do you have companies, why is there no pressure on these companies to change what the conditions are, you know, and, and what's needed in order to do that? Well, you know, I, that was definitely, you know, a takeaway from talking to advocates for the story that, you know, the, the attention that a lot of folks were pointing me to attention is that, you know, the main condition that advocates told me would really materially help curtail the spread of the virus at this point is distancing workers more in the facility and allowing for more distance, particularly on the processing line where, you know, as as I'm sure we've all seen and heard, you know, those, these are very, especially in meatpacking plants, very cramped environments. And that's, that's part of what fueled the spread of COVID so quickly, especially last spring and summer. And in order to, to space people out more in those 
types of in processing environments, the, the processing speed would have to decrease, right? Just sort of, you know, fewer people needs to go slower. And that, of course, would affect or could affect, you know, how much production the plant was, was putting out. And those that's like an example where the, the interest of the industry, which is to maximize production and the interest of the worker advocate, which is to reduce the amount of illness, are, are directly in tension with one another. And, you know, there there is definitely um, policy work being done on, on line speeds, in particular, both in rulemaking at, at the Department of Agriculture and also through, you know, bills that are being proposed. And, and this was an issue far before COVID. So there's, you know, a whole advocacy environment around that. Uh, but, but it is, you know, directly in tension with sort of the bottom line of the companies, which I think is why, you know, it's it sort of has reached a stalemate. Or we haven't seen those changes adopted voluntarily by the industry as well. How about it look like you had a question earlier? Yeah, great reporting from Leah. I definitely love reading all this. I also cover sections of farm workers and your reporting has informed a lot of mine. So definitely wanted to put that shout out out there. In a lot of my reporting, there's also seems to be this tension of how far federal mandates can go versus local government at multiple levels, state versus county versus just the employer itself. And I was curious, Leah, if in any of your reporting, there had been any clarity as to who is in charge or who can be the best to create any sort of mandate or uh, enforcement or recommendations to change these working conditions. That's a great question. Also, hi, Jimena. It's so fun to not just talk on Twitter. And, you know, I think the the, the advocacy that's ongoing, I think, is really pushing for, for federal standards. I think that's where there can be some uniformity achieved sort of in, in one go, and not that it's easy by any means. You know, folks are still really pushing the Department of Labor to pass an emergency. It's called an emergency temporary standard, which would essentially create uh, enforceable guidelines for how these uh, companies should protect workers from COVID and and give some you know some enforcement teeth to to what's previously been or so far in the pandemic has been voluntary guidelines. So that's one place where you know there's a lot of attention on what a federal mechanism can do. Some states have passed their own version of of those standards, not not too too many, but a handful. And so you know there is room there for the state to step in where the federal government hasn't yet. Um, and and this is an area where we're probably going to see some ongoing discussion. There's already some, you know, some impatience bubbling up in the advocacy world. There was a lot of confidence that President Biden would make this uh, temporary standard pretty immediate step to address COVID for, for all workers. This isn't just food system workers. But there's been, uh, for sort of not entirely clear reasons, some some foot dragging on actually getting that across the finish line. So I think that's that's the main area of focus. But there are, you know, things that, that can and have been done at the, the, the more local level as well. Thank you so much, Leah. Next, we have a story from Chloe, Chloe Sorvino from Forbes about Atlas uh, Food Co. They uh, raised $40 million to reach, uh, to create bacon from mushrooms. And there's a lot of interesting parts about the story, especially this idea of whole cut alternative meats. So Chloe, tell us about this story. Hey, thank you. And before I get into mushroom bacon, um, because I'm kind of coming out of book leave just to kind of cover a select few news, and this was a Series A $40 million raise, which is why I covered it this week. But I want to go back to what Leah was saying earlier and Louise's question. Leah's reporting has been so amazing on all of this, and the data is really so powerful. Louisa, though, asked about robotics and I do think that future is here more than we all realize. And 
you know, I say it with a grain of salt, but, you know, JBS, which is, uh, it's USA division includes its Australia division. It's the world's largest meat packer. They have an almost completely automated plant in Australia. And there's another in Brooklyn. Um, I know Tyson's been really trying to build its next chicken plant to be almost, you know, very significantly automated. And, you know, I think this is the unfortunate thing because, you know, when they think there ends up being pressure, (laughs) the response is kind of becoming replaced with robotics and not make these jobs better. These are, you know, such dangerous jobs and such unsafe jobs. And they have been for so long. We've been turning a blind eye to them for so long in that way. And, you know, with the publicly traded companies coming in and, you know, getting pressure from investors, all these ESG concerns are kind of just, you know, I don't know. I'm I'm seeing a lot of this, like with also deforestation, and you know the pressures just kind of getting shunted to this other problem. So I've been trying to talk to the union UFCW about this because I can only imagine that they're going to be, you know, trying to make sure that robotics aren't coming in and completing completely replacing a lot of jobs. But I do think it's going to start to becoming become part part of these, you know, discussions and um, the challenges that you know I think the workplace labor we're going to have to face is as they get pressure from management. Going back to mushroom bacon, though. So yeah, at last, it was a big week for mycelium in general. At last, company I've been tracking for a while. It's a spinoff from Ecovative. It's a really fascinating founder, and I won't take up too much more time explaining it all, but he is an off-the-grid inventor type in upstate New York who was a student at Rensselaer Polytechnic and pretty much discovered and invented a whole subcategory of materials materials science all about mycelium and so this company's been around for a long time but it recently has spun off to try to create and commercialize mycelium ingredients and and create a more clean ingredient and a more a less processed ingredient in this kind of alternative protein emerging industry so you know at last it raised 40 million as i said it's got some pretty interesting investors in it everyone from lisa ferry of straight off capital to the founders of applegate the organic meat company to the founder of stony field organics the milk company and to even robert robert downey jr's venture firm but it really is you know they seemingly have potentially cracked the code on these whole cuts as danielle was talking about and we can we can bring that open up open that up a bit more to the overall debate but I, it's a one that's potentially really interesting to watch and could be really important in terms of clean and less processed and more actual sustainable ingredients moving forward. I um, also will say that I do want to learn more about how the mycelium is produced at scale, and I will be visiting the plant soon that is coming out because I want to make sure that you know it's not really mimicking some of the other issues of, of mass mass industrialization. So I'm excited about that, but happy to keep talking about any of it. What do you think is most interesting? Chloe, about about the company and the potential for the mycelium-based, plant-based products? I mean, mushrooms inherently are just way more sustainable. They obviously do need to eat something, but the there really should be a, a way that it could really, maybe not taking up wasted products, but uh, it, it really could be a way to really create a sustainable protein source at scale. I think that's what's most exciting for me. And also, you know, obviously there's still, you know, fragrances, there's coconut oil in this. It's, this is not a perfect, completely not processed thing. It just, I think the starting point is just so much more strong than you get when you have like a soy protein isolate combined with canola oil and a bunch of this other shit. 
Um, yeah, this is um, Elaine from Food Navigator USA. I've been writing about um, Atlas and also another company doing something similar called Meaty for the past couple of years. And I, I think I agree with Chloe. I think it's kind of super interesting because this whole cut space is pretty untapped in the market. The thing that's interesting to me about this is kind of the consumer messaging angle because they're using mycelium. So, you know, we think about mushrooms as having these kind of fruiting kind of cups, you know, the things that stick out with the stalk and the, the dome at the top. But that's kind of not what they're doing. It's mycelium. So they're kind of like the root-like kind of fibrous structure that kind of grows underneath. Or in some species, you don't get that kind of dome cup at all. And so, you know, they look like these kind of foamy looking slabs of meat. And they've, yeah. got this kind of, they've got this kind of strap line on the Atlast website, which is mycelium equals mushroom. And in their first consumer product, they've got the phrase meat made from mushrooms tastes like bacon. But, you know, I don't think, you know, consumers actually know what mycelium is. Um, you know, it's not it's not like they're taking the domes of mushrooms and kind of cutting them up. They're actually kind of in Atlas's case, they're using solid state fermentation. So they've got these huge trays. They've got various kind of wood like material because that's what uh, um, the oyster mushroom mycelium species they're using is a wood digesting species mm-hmm. um you, you know you can grow them from byproducts the paper industry things like that plus some other nutrients and they've got these trays and they're growing this kind of foamy white <laughs> stuff so it's not like what a consumer would recognize as a mushroom but it's basically kind of nutritionally and structurally the same thing it's just kind of growing in a different form but you know it's it's not quite you know if you've got a kind of a picture of a mushroom in the consumer's mind it's not quite like that and there's the other, there's the other company that's doing something similar meaty foods they've just raised 18 million dollars this week and they're also going to commercial scale production next year and they're using this submerged fermentation so they've got kind of tanks with kind of liquids and then they're kind of getting this material out of it and then it's a great kind of um, blank canvas for you to then add other things but they're not all quite the same I think meaties has got a lot more protein in than at last so with at last you could maybe infuse it with additional protein or add other you know flavors colors fats and that kind of thing because it hasn't really got any fat in it so, so I think it's you know pretty exciting but the, you know I don't know how the consumer messaging is going to work because it kind of is mushrooms but it isn't <laughs> so um, I'm, I'm fascinated to see how they talk to consumers about it. The technology has been around for decades in various forms. There's a brand called Quorn, Q-U-O-R-N, that has pretty good penetration, natural and specialty channels. That's, that's sort of been doing the same sort of vat-grown uh, fungal byproducts. And you, you consider that the fungal kingdom is larger in the number of species than either the animal or plant kingdoms. There's probably plenty other potential to look at this. And the good news is you can't call this plant-based because it's from a fungi. I'm, I'm curiously optimistic about this type of technology since it's already proven in the marketplace and probably you know, has a lot of options you can make with interesting consumer goods, especially if the feedstock is somewhat sustainable. So thanks for pointing that out. Yeah, um, I was also going to bring up corn because they have been around as uh, since the 1980s, and um, you know they have bigger penetration internationally than uh, they do here, but they are able to make almost everything in terms of substitutes. They have not done anything that's really in the whole cut market, at least that I've seen. So I think that it will be really interesting to see uh, just kind of how some of these products turn out. You know how they the texture and thickness. 
how they feel in the mouth, how they cut, that sort of thing. But uh, what corn has done is they just have kind of rebranded their own word for what their mycelium is. They call it mycoprotein. They take a lot of time to explain it on their website uh, and kind of talk through what it is. But uh, it's really, really very interesting. And I'm looking forward to seeing what comes next. Yeah, I just this one thing I'd say about this that I think is different to corn is the way that it grows. So that this, because corn, because the, the texture of it, you know, you have to kind of bind it together. It, it's whereas, uh, from what I can understand from talking to the guys at Atlas, the thing that's pretty cool about this is you can have something that's a bit kind of tougher. They've got this kind of biofabrication process that's tunable, so you can adjust the various growing conditions and you can make something that's more dense, that's more porous that has areas that have more areas where you can suck up fat and things. So, And then you can kind of slice it so it actually grows in a slightly different way and is potentially much more like a whole cut of meat than, than the corn product. So I think it's got a lot you know, more potential in that kind of whole cut space. I'm just wondering if you all think just in terms of using the word mushroom in consumer branding, because I feel like if we're, if it's, Plant-based meat so much nowadays is about let's not just appeal to the vegans necessarily, but we need to convert more meat eaters into eating these meat alternatives for various reasons. Mushroom, I think, still makes a lot of people think of, you know, the portobello sandwich thingy at fill-in-the-blank whatever restaurant or something. So it'll be interesting to see, like, how that is handled in the branding in addition to having to kind of clearly explain the process without sort of overburdening consumers with the technical lingo, but still making it, you know, as transparent as possible. I think that's going to be the the major challenge in this space, especially as more of these products come onto the market. I mean, Nature's Find has got a product from these extremophile microorganisms, and that's a kind of fungi as well. And they're marketing their first consumer products as containing nutritional fungi protein. So again, I don't know what that means to consumers or whether it's um, enticing or not, but I think that's a big question in this space. And especially as more of these products come onto the market, you know, how do you make it? engaging and appetizing to consumers while also being sufficiently transparent about what it is. Yeah, and with Nature's Fine, you obviously also have like the the Bill Gates-backed question too coming in here, right? And I just want to say, I, I don't think I said this earlier, but to answer Danielle's question earlier, whole cuts are the vast majority of meat sales, you know, way bigger than ground beef, ground pork, those sausages. So, I mean, this is really getting at a way bigger potential piece of the pie. And it's a little, little bit, I guess, of a segue into Layla's story and that we're going to be talking about next. But, you know, I think that's why I'm so excited about it because it really is the potential to get at so much more of the overall consumption. Yeah, before we get into Layla's story, just quickly, Chloe. So I was on another clubhouse room yesterday and someone was saying that mushrooms are actually really big emitters of CO2. And he was in a mushroom grow house and he had like a CO2 monitor or oxygen That's... monitor. And it was as if you were like climbing to the top of Everest or something with the amount of oxygen in there. So I'm just wondering when you said it's more sustainable, what's that kind of based on? It's part of why I'm really 
intrigued about what will happen when I go to the actual facility and like what right what I'll be wearing what what goggles what actually protective gear there will be I've never seen an industrial white button farm but I've heard that they are equally way more industrial than a lot of people think and a lot of vegans who tell eating eating mushrooms would would think no I I hear that and I think that's why there are a lot of lasting questions with it but that's okay. I think where also the subject really matters yeah cool great okay so thank you everyone for comments on that one so next up Leila Nagy from The Counter and you did an article a couple of weeks ago now but we thought it was just so interesting we really wanted you to speak to it today which is about you know the groundswell of investor funding in plant-based proteins that we've been talking about each week here on the Future Food News Review but apparently it hasn't led to a decrease in meat consumption so can you tell us more? Sure. Thank you. Thanks, Louisa. And just before I go on with this, I just want to say, Chloe, to your point about CO2 emissions, you know, I'm working on a fungi story right now. And of course, like in a natural a natural setting, fungi, yeah, they emit CO2, but it's all sort of part of Earth's functioning to keep keep our our temperatures in balance. And this is like an ongoing question for scientists about how that actually works naturally. But it's such an important conversation to be having in terms of industrializing sort of any of these potential crops for our food system, right? Like we don't know what all of the potential uh, sustainability issues are. And at the same time, I think the idea of using fungi is kind of interesting, especially when I talk to some sources for these stories around alt protein more generally, who bring up issues of sustainability, not just around, as I'll, I'll talk about in a minute, not reducing companies, not committing to reducing meat production, but also issues around having monocultures and what that means for ecosystems and, you know, having better labor standards and things like that. So, so a lot of questions, but super interesting. Thank you. So yeah, so right, this is a story from a couple of weeks ago when the Good Food Institute released some data showing that investors were super excited to funnel some money into alt-meat, alt-protein. It was a high of $3.1 billion that was actually invested over the course of the past year, 2019 to 2020. Most of that going to alternative meat sources, sort of like what Beyond and Impossible are, are, are engaged in, as opposed to like fermentation and cell-based meat. At the same time, you know, there's all this optimism that this means that the market is about to shift, that consumers are really starting to embrace plant-based products, and that a lot of people, there was a report from Food Dive that said that people identifying as meat eaters dropped in that same time period from 85% to 71%, which sounds great. And then you have this other kind of interesting statistic, which is that, again, in the same time period, meat sales were up 19.2%. So even though there's a lot of optimism that people are embracing these plant-based products and maybe becoming introduced for the first time and willing to try them again, it's not just a one-off kind of situation. You know, meat is scaling up too. Not only are we continuing to eat lots of meat in this country, but when we can't get it here in the States, like from line shutdowns, we're like getting more from Brazil, which definitely happened during the pandemic. 
So the really big question is, are we building a parallel system to this one that we are proposing to, to, to remedy? And that's the really big question mark. So there are a lot of questions around that, and I'm definitely going to be keeping my eye on the sustainability issues going forward. Well, I love this story so much. I think when I saw it originally, I was just like, yes, like out loud. <laughs> I, w- I feel like I've talked in this clubhouse way too much already over the past few weeks about this kind of issue where the funding frenzy around this is just yeah. making more profits, creating distraction and taking away from like this industrialized subsidized meat production system, which is continuing to have business booming and business more than usual. The one thing I will say is uh, I, I don't, I think that the Nielsen numbers, um, they are bigger in part because of the shift this past year to, to grocery from food service with the COVID shutdowns. However, it is completely true that meat sales are increasing and that this, this, this industry is continuing to thrive as alternative meats are seemingly, you know, making making gains. They're barely taking a bite out of anything. Um, and it's really kind of framing my book, which is why I was so excited to see this um, talked about. Well, cool. And it's such a catch-22, too, I think, right? Because we really need to talk about the fact that we are no companies are committing to producing less meat, right? McDonald's, Cargill, whoever it is, Tyson, not... <laughs> like, I reached out to all of them, no comment. And so... At the same time, you know, the folks who you would really want to or expect to be sort of flagging this issue don't want to say too much about it because they don't want to play into the hands of, you know, big meat that's going to hop on any opportunity to say, you know, to create dissension among consumers, right, that there's really any need to, to stop eating meat. So it's kind of a frustrating space to report on right now. It's a great article, Lilo. It's one of, one of the best I've seen recently on the topic. And I think the uh, investor frenzy is driven a lot by the fear of missing out. Like Beyond tried to raise funds for almost a decade in the private markets and eventually went public. And now it's like lemmings over a cliff. And there's, there's a lot of cluelessness in, in that investor world about you know what they're investing in and a lot of misperceptions. The fact that belief that maybe grocery stores are like accordions that you could actually fit so much more product on the shelf as opposed to you know reducing other products you know Kroger and Whole Foods have both twin line beyond meat with with meat and it's helped grow uh, beyond meat sales but you know there's disincentive for the retailers to you know see a decline in their meat sales you know and I think it also misses the point of why aren't plant-based advocates advocating for workers in these meat plans? Why aren't plant-based advocates advocating for better regulation of these big meat companies or breaking up the monopolies like uh, what um, Claire Kellaway has written about and you know Leah Douglas and Food and Power? So I, I think that there's this feeding frenzy. It's really driven by uh, greed and delusion among many of these investors. And it's sort of overshadowing the fact that there are some really good products out there doing plant-based whole food nutrition. There's some really committed long-term investors Chris Kerr, who, who've been in it for a decade, but it's good to see you shout this out. Thank you. They're not, they're not being, they're not trying to get big meat packing broken up because they want to get acquired by the same people. You know, it's, it's everyone's so intertwined. It's just, it's a mess. For sure. And yeah, and thank you for your nice words about it. And for sure, you know, when you look at this, you think, 
you know, oh, there's all this action in sort of plant-based meat, and yet at the same time, the same massive global corporations stand to gain, right? Like they're going to make a profit no matter what. And so it becomes increasingly important to sort of point out that, that, that point, I think. Yeah. And I think, you know, building on this, Shel Simon has been publishing a lot on LinkedIn recently and bringing up some really interesting points around with when you see these companies having partnerships with the McDonald's of the world, you know, you could argue, great, it's you're being able to access a wider demographic. and and But at the same time, you're actually helping to rehab these fast food companies that are s- supporting, you know, in large part are supporting this the industrial meat complex. And so I thought that was just a, a really interesting point that she had brought up. And you're and you know, I know we do talk about this a lot, but I think it's so important because this is where so much of the money in the food space is going. And there's also this idea that we're doing it to save the planet, right? You know, there's this like techno saviorism, techno optimism complex that's happening and and a lot of it is coming down to, you know, profits. Um, so I really appreciated this story, Leela, a lot. And Chloe, there, there's never enough conversation about this. So don't no, never apologize for, for adding your comments on this. Well, and actually, one of the best things about reporting the story was that one of my sources, who was dynamite, introduced me to the word criminogenic, which means that companies are always going to, we have to expect them to always be bad actors unless they're regulated because competition spurs them to cut corners constantly, right? And so, you know, to your point about these big corporations and what they stand to gain, you know, at the same time that we're, you know, possibly patting McDonald's on the back for, you know, embracing plant-based meat and, you know, quote unquote, saving the planet or doing their part there. You know, Civil Eats had a story yesterday about, you know, the biggest producer of potatoes for McDonald's French fries and how, you know, there's this whole toxic wasteland situation brewing in Minnesota around, you know, agricultural pollution that they're putting into incredibly sensitive and vulnerable waterways. So, you know, these things are happening concurrently. Yeah. And I I think, you know, one of the things I'm a big advocate for and very public about is that we have to think systemically, you know, that if we're going, we are going to need all different kinds of solutions in order to feed our planet or feed people in a way that doesn't destroy our planet and actually allows us to live more in harmony with our planet. And, but we have, we, you have a lot of companies that are raising a lot of venture capital. They're looking for very quick growth right now, or you have a lot of big companies that are looking to rethink their supply chains to be more regenerative and biodiverse, but you have to think systemically, you know, it can't just be about going after market share. It has to be, okay, how do we grow systems that are scaling entire systems, not just single ingredients? How do we think holistically about uh, welfare of the, the, the farmers, the, all the, um, food workers that are involved in getting food to our plate, how do we think more holistically about the environmental implications? So thank you all for engaging in these stories. Oh, sorry, Jen, you had something to say. Oh, just one quick thing, your comment. And I think this has kind of been a a subtle theme in a lot of the discussion today is, uh, you know, I think I hear so much because I'm covering tech and innovation constantly, this sort of savior thing. And I think absolutely it can be a distraction from, 
you know, what are we doing about the systems in place? What are we doing about the ethics? What are we doing about, you know, companies' responsibility to their workers, to the planet? And I, I think moving forward, like definitely for the meat industry, but I think this is applicable across all of food, is it's going to become more important to talk about, you know, innovation's not, it, it can't always be some savior that just swoops in and fixes everything. I mean, there's much more fundamental issues that have to be addressed that, you know, especially in the meat industry, people aren't doing right now. And I think that something there is really going to have to change or to everybody's point, we're just going to end up repeating the same system over and over again. Hell yes. More conversations about ethics and food innovation. Well, I was going to say one thing that comes up, Jen, to your point over and over in my reporting on multiple stories is the question of monitoring and oversight and what's it going to take, right? A lot of states are disincentivized to monitor and really make sure that the ag sector is doing what it should because it's big business in their state. So the question lurking in the back of my mind for so many stories is when is any kind of oversight and monitoring really going to happen? We'll see. Absolutely. And, and you know, actually, I was a little bit disheartened. There was a conversation I was listening into yesterday with some plant-based uh, protein companies, and a question came up around, you know, labeling and, and, and declaring what the ingredients were in, in their packaging. And essentially, what was the conclusion on this conversation was, well, at least, you know, it's less bad than meat. At least, you know, this, some of our ingredients are less bad than meat or the environmental credentials are less bad than meat. But they didn't feel there was a responsibility to go even further and actually be have a positive benefit, you know, delving into where they're getting their ingredients from and so on. And the practices behind that, it, it just seemed like we just need to get rid of meat at all costs. And, you know, it's a very dangerous road to be going down. Not to mention that there's a sort of kick the can kind of philosophy that happens too. If we're not going to have so much meat being produced here in the U.S., well, you know, on the sly, these corporations are not even really on the sly. We'll just move production to Brazil and then that country and their workers and their communities will suffer like the degradation instead of us. And also, just to mention really quick, um, a lot of plant-based meat is not less bad than meat at least as in what has been found so far, in terms of health anyway. Yeah. Well, we're going to keep having these conversations. Leela, thank you so much for sharing. And to, just to be clear, to I mean, I see a bunch of plant-based people from plant-based companies. I, I think that everyone, you know, we are, we, we try to have nuanced conversations here about these topics. And so just appreciate everyone engaging in the conversation. We have one last story that we're going to share right now from Errol Schweitzer, who has interviewed the UFCW Local 770 President John Grant about hazard pay and grocery store closings, and also interviewed a retail clerk from Kroger. And this is an important topic that we've been talking about. We, we do talk, try to talk quite a bit about the uh, food and farm workers in these conversations. So Errol, tell us about your story. Yeah. And thanks everybody for sticking around. This has been like an amazing session. I just want to appreciate all the other writers and, and just deep thinkers, just honestly, I'm in a much better mood than I have been all week now. So it's great to hear everybody's thoughtfulness. So yeah, this has been, this was a really intense interview. It was two UFCW folks 
this is a sort of like a continuation of the uh, Forbes piece I wrote on uh, Kroger's hazard pay. You know, what I call it, their roulette. They're, they've decided to close seven stores uh, to protest the hazard pay mandates that have been voted on by city councils in uh, Seattle and a number of California cities. And so I, I figured I'd reach out to you know the trade union and see you know how this came about and their motivations and what the vibe was like and I mean it's intense it's intense and this this sort of ties up I think the issues we're talking about and how we frame food system work you know and that the worker's voice not only needs to be included but should be centered and the voice of organized workers that you know these trade unions who I feel more than any other organized institution throughout COVID-19 have effectively advocated and defended, you know, the safety and, and work standards and, and pay of, of essential workers throughout the food system. And, you know, they're far from perfect, and that's not the point, but they're, they're driven and they've been pushed by their membership. And that's really what we dug into here, the fact that, you know, up to 30% of uh, black and people of color uh, essential workers had been infected by COVID in the grocery industry, over 18% across the board, obviously closer to 50% in packing house and the um, sectors that Leah covers. You know, workers have had to deal with hostile customers and getting spat on and people throwing carts at them, not wanting to follow mask mandates. You know, there's been a, you know, lack of what they feel respect and, and acknowledgement from you know, big companies that they work for in, in terms of the efforts. And the, there's hidden costs for food workers in terms of many of them are part-time. Retail clerks, they're the sole income source in their family sometimes because they're an essential employee. They work in two or three jobs. They're commuting all over the place. Imagine that in a place like California. They're having to do extra laundry because of, you know, fear of contamination. And then at work, in addition to stocking and ringing up customers and all the other stuff you have to deal with. They're doing all these wipe downs and cleanings and, and enforcing social distancing, et cetera. So there was a really strong effort by rank and file you know, retail clerks to say, hey, we, we need to get paid better. We're risking our lives. We're doing all this extra work that's not covered by our collective bargaining contracts. And they held these town halls all over California and in Seattle where hundreds of members would call into city council hearings and they really pushed elected officials to take action. They motivated their community members, like the, the folks that they, you know, they live around to, you know, support them. You know, folks really stepped up to say, hey, you know, we, we need to do more for these workers that are keeping everybody fed, that are keeping these grocery stores running. And that's how they pass these, these mandates. And they've done other stuff, too, like they've developed apps and uh, checklists that can get uploaded right to the to the uh, Department of Health. They've just created this in, these incredible relationships of solidarity in terms of mutual support. And they're talking about, well, this is more than just how we get treated at work. This is about food access and the fact that they're closing stores in working class uh, communities. We need to look at transportation and why folks aren't able to get to grocery stores. You know, we need to look at healthcare and the fact that all these folks are getting sick and you know they're, they're not getting taken care of. And really what they're trying to say is that, you know, the unions have been these, uh, you know, organized institutions for support and mutual aid that, you know, they're, when they stand together, they're stronger together. When they stand together, they're smarter together. They're able to accomplish more. Um, they're able to take up broader issues. So 
for me, you know, as a, somebody in food retail all these years who I've never been unionized, you know, and I've luckily worked for some great, great organizations, it was inspiring to see how folks, you know, at rank and file are, are thinking about this and taking action, but then also, you know, just, just really heartbreaking, you know, what they're going through, you know, and talking to Maria Hernandez, this uh, retail clerk who's been with you know, Kroger for like 20 plus years and she's losing her job. She's, you know, her mom has commute and she's got kids and she's got to, you know, now work at a store that's much further away from home. You know, store in her neighborhood is one of the lows. So, um, you know, I, I would invite other in the food journalism world to send some of the story around workers as opposed to just seeing them as a subject or an object, but to see them as an agent of your own destiny. And that's what I like about talking to these folks and hoping more of it. So this is a radio podcast. Errol, you cut out a little bit there. Sam, I'm curious if you've been looking at this space at all, if you have any thoughts. So generally speaking, the issue of way, the way that grocery workers have, have been treated and how they've managed during the pandemic has been a constant storyline for us throughout the pandemic. And indeed, we have heard a lot from the UFCW uh, about their concerns regarding the way that the grocery chains have interacted with the workers. For sure, issues such as hazard pay have been storylines throughout the year in, in different ways. At the beginning, it was actually something that the grocery chains were promoting. They were pointing out that they were able to give extra pay to workers and that this was a sign of how much they valued their workforces. As the year went on, of course, that storyline began to shift as hazard pay began to go away. But we've seen more recently that it has kind of quieted down. Unions have been, I think, been a bit more vocal about uh, issues like getting workers access to vaccines. So I imagine that this back and forth between the grocers and the people who represent the workers is going to continue to evolve as the pandemic does. Yeah, and they're continuing to push back against these store closures. And, you know, I think the, the fact that, you know, the union was really pushed by their members to take greater action, I think is a key piece here. And the fact that, you know, as you guys have been documenting, you know, the Brookings Institute did a great report about this the huge profits of grocers, particularly after they ended the uh, hazard pay payouts in you know May and April, you know, almost a year ago, yet it was windfall. And now this year, you know, the excuse is, well, our comps are going to be down, like our profits are going to be down, which is you know I think legit. Like their numbers are going to take a hit, but when the numbers were up, you know, there was this real extractive you know relationship with their workers, which is now. I think really soured a lot of uh, folks in those stores towards how, how they're being treated. So yeah, I do appreciate the coverage, centering it with, with the workers and, and seeing workers as union members and not unions as separate from their, their members is actually super important too in terms of the framing. So thanks. Chloe, I know you also did some reporting on this. Any, anything that you want to add? I was just going to say to Earl's point earlier, just now about the the profits and the massive profits that have been extracted. It was almost like they were doing this with the understanding that it may never happen again for a really long time because grocery is such a historically low margin business that doesn't change much at all. I don't know. I mean, 
I'm not, I don't know if there really was, you know, that much of it. Maybe saying, maybe being a little too cheeky, but it, it, it really was, the timing is really important. Yeah. And it builds off of like, like the last seven years of massive shareholder buybacks where they've essentially redistributed the wealth that they've generated to the upper echelon of you know, their executives and, and investors. That's essentially what these share buybacks were. I think Kroger had done like $7 billion of them, $7 billion worth in the last five years. So, I mean, look, folks, it's, it's class war. <laughs> you know, it's who's, who's winning, who's losing here. And when we're talking about automation and you know, the, you know, COVID-19 and you know, meat plant workers, it's, it's a lot of the same patterns that we're seeing in terms of the, the degradation of work and how people are treated doing what we're saying is essential, but acted like it's acting towards them like they're expendable. Great. Well, thank you so much for all everyone's reporting on this and Errol for you sharing this. Everyone make sure that you are tapping on each of these journalists, following them. You can go to foodtechconnect.club backslash chat and we've shared all of the stories they're also all included in our newsletter and we'll be tweeting them out um thank you so much to everyone for joining us for this hour and a half and change it's been a really wide-ranging conversation and we really appreciate all of your insights and perspectives as i I didn't say this up at the top of the hour but we are always want to highlight as many diverse voices and perspectives as possible So if you in the audience know anyone or you are someone who is a journalist or a writer, um, wants to get involved with future sessions, please reach out to Louisa or I. And thank you so much, everyone. This has been such a great conversation. We'll be posting the podcast on Monday, and we look forward to seeing you next week. Yes, thank you so much to everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Have great weekends. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Future Food with me, Louisa Burwood-Taylor. For news and insights on the food tech and ag tech industries, go to agfundernews.com. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review.